hello, everyone. It is time for the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. Thanks for joining me. Uh, well, it has been a little over a year and a half since the physics world was rocked, shaken, in the best possible way by one of the most important scientific findings of the last decade or so. I mean, the discovery of the Higgs boson. That is a teensy-weensy subatomic particle that physicists have been theorizing about and looking for for a very long time. And on July 4th, 2012, they announced that they had finally flushed the little bugger out of its hiding place and snagged it in what amounts to the most elaborate mousetrap ever built by humankind, the humongous particle accelerator known as the Large Hadron Collider, the LHC. Well, the mainstream media were all over the story, so you almost certainly got an earful of it. But I'm guessing uh, you maybe didn't get a lot of background on why the Higgs matters, on what it took to catch it, and where physics goes from here. So they got their Higgs, but now what? And that is why I wanted to have Howard Haber on today's show. He's a theoretical physicist at UC Santa Cruz and part of the Santa Cruz Institute for Particle Physics. And he is very much a Higgs honcho. In fact, he uh, co-wrote the uh, definitive text on how to look for a Higgs boson called the Higgs Hunter's Guide. And uh, I had another reason for having Howie Haber on the show at this time, and that is that uh, there is a new documentary film out about the search for the Higgs. It's called Particle Fever, and it's getting its local premiere this week, sponsored by the Santa Cruz Institute for Particle Physics. It opens at the Nickelodeon Theater in Santa Cruz on Friday, March 14th. That's this coming Friday at 7 p.m. And Howie will be there as part of a panel of physicists to answer questions from the audience. But uh, first things first, I wanted him to answer some of my questions, starting with a little history. And as you're going to hear, Howie and the Higgs go way back. In fact, uh, my Ph.D. thesis back in 1978, one of the parts of it involved trying to study aspects of the Higgs boson. And in fact, back then we were asking the question, what makes this particle so hard to discover? So you've really been seriously interested in the Higgs ever since grad school? That's correct. Wow. We should say we mean the Higgs boson, this particle that was eventually discovered uh, a little less than uh, two years ago, but that people had been thinking about for 50 years almost. Yeah, almost. Uh, it was invented in 1964, so actually this is the 50th anniversary yeah. of the original papers. Um, let's go back, though, to, to this phrase you used or this word you used that I think is kind of interesting, invented the Higgs particle. Right. Of course, the, among the people who first conceived of it was Peter Higgs, right. a British physicist after whom it takes its name. There were several others involved. There were. Uh, they didn't get their name on the little thing. What was first invented was the Higgs mechanism. The reason why Higgs is associated with the boson is because he was the, the guy to realize that in the model that makes use of the Higgs mechanism, there was an extra particle that others had not noticed existed. Uh-huh. So it was a consequence of the theory that made use of the Higgs mechanism. So the idea of the Higgs boson and the mechanism that gives rise to it is, mm -hmm. is really quite old. Among the people who thought of these things was Peter Higgs. There were a number of other important people. There was Steven Weinberg, right. Nobel Prize winner, great physicist, uh, and one of the architects of the standard model of particle physics. When the Higgs was finally found a couple years ago, um, it was often described as, as filling a major hole, a really important gap in the standard model of particle physics. Right. And, and maybe you can describe what that hole was, what the problem was, and why it was so important to find well, if, a solution. Well, if you take the standard model as is and remove the Higgs boson completely and try to describe all the particles and forces inside the standard model as we observed them in nature, you can't do it. Um, you write down the equations that describe these things, and they ultimately make no sense you end up getting complete nonsense without the Higgs boson. And, you know, we're using this bland-sounding term, standard model of particle physics. But this is like the foundation of 
modern particle physics, right? The standard uh, Essentially, model? It, it tells you what the fundamental particles are and how they interact, what the fundamental forces are uh, that describe the interactions of those particles. And these particles make up the atoms and they make up the molecules, et cetera, et cetera. As I understand it then, and correct me if I'm wrong, the, the standard model, which is so important, the foundation of much of what we know about reality on the physical level, predicted that a lot of these bosons, or some of them, should have no mass whatsoever. They should be like the photon, which has no mass. Is that right? Right. You need some mechanism that can generate mass for those bosons that mediate the weak force. The weak nuclear force. Yeah, the weak nuclear force. Which Just is for res some. responsible for radioactive decay. Certain radioactive decay. Certain radioactive decay and, and some parts of uh, nuclear fusion. Right. Uh, right. So this is one of the four fundamental forces, and you're saying that you need some mechanism that will explain why these particles seem to have mass. Right. Hey, folks, uh, pardon me for interrupting this broadcast, but uh, I need to fill in a little gap in the conversation here. Uh, as you heard, we were just talking about the physical process called the Higgs mechanism, which uh, gives certain particles their mass. And uh, what I need to add is that that mechanism itself happens when those particles interact with something called the Higgs field. It's a field kind of like an electrical field. It fills all of space, hither and yon, and it has existed since the early moments following the Big Bang. And it is the Higgs field that is the most important part of the recent discovery. The Higgs boson is just the messenger, and the message is the Higgs field is real. Oh, and I uh, might as well mention that a boson, in case you've been wondering, is one of two kinds of fundamental particles. There are fermions, like quarks and electrons, that make up the stuff in the universe, the matter. And then there are bosons, which are particles that transmit forces and make things happen to the stuff. So, for example, when two electrons repel each other, uh, because they're both negatively charged and like charges repel, it's actually because they're exchanging a photon. That's what's carrying the force. And other kinds of bosons transmit other forces, like the W and Z bosons that convey the weak nuclear force. Those are, in fact, the bosons that get their mass from the Higgs field. Okay, you guys don't really have to remember all of that, but I thought you'd like to know. Now back to the interview. Um, you yourself have been part of this long-running hunt for the Higgs boson, which in turn is proof of the Higgs field, mm -hmm. since you were in grad school. Yep. What made you so interested in this particular particle, you know, undiscovered at that time? Was it sexy? No, I, the, there wasn't a, a huge cadre of people working on the Higgs boson. In fact, 1967, Weinberg comes out with his paper, which first introduces the Higgs boson in a theory of the weak interactions, the, what turns out to be a successful theory of the weak interactions. And this it, is well before you were in grad school. Well before I was in grad school. But when Weinberg wrote his paper, it still wasn't clear to him and to many other people whether his theory um, ultimately was a sensible mathematical theory. Uh -huh. And it took about six years, quite a long time, and it was considered an incredibly hard problem. And in fact, I remember hearing about this towards the end of my undergraduate days that, you know, very few people were working on this because it was an extremely difficult problem and it probably wasn't going to make mathematical sense after all and uh, uh, don't waste your time and do other things. And then suddenly, in I think it was around 1973, a graduate student of a fairly well-known particle theorist wrote a paper where he proved that it made mathematical sense, and, and it sent shockwaves through the theoretical physics community. And 73, so... 1973. So the idea of Higgsiness started in 1964. Right. But Steven Weinberg really crystallized the idea of the Higgs field and, and what's called the Higgs mechanism in 1967. Well, he appropriated it for the theory of the weak interactions. Ah, the weak interactions. Okay, so the, this is a, the interaction that's behind the weak nuclear force. Right. But then in 1973, 
you say, is when all this really began to seem plausible. Yes. Uh, it was a fellow by the name of Gerhard Etuft. Oh, and, yeah, the famous Dutch physicist. Right. Yeah. And uh, he also won the Nobel Prize, uh, mainly for this proof, along with his thesis advisor, uh, Martinus Veltman. So in 1973, once that proof was accepted, suddenly a lot of people paid attention to the weak interactions, its experimental consequences. And in 1976, there were a group of theorists, one of them being John Ellis from CERN, who wrote the first modern paper on the implications of Weinberg's theory for the Higgs boson. Hmm. And when did, when did you come into the picture um, in grad school? Basically two years later, two years after later. that paper. And this paper is great. There was this wonderful section at the very end of the paper where Ellis and collaborators said, in this paper we have described to you all the properties, theoretical properties of the Higgs boson in Weinberg's theory, but we don't know its mass. And we apologize to the rest of the physicists for not knowing its mass. So we can't tell you where to go and look for it in your experiments. And we don't want you to go and build humongous experiments for the purpose of discovering this particle. That would be too much to ask. But we thought you might be interested to know how to look for this Higgs particle in the experiments you're already doing. Now, let's explain just a little something here. You can do it much better than I, but I'll get you started. Okay. Um, if you don't know anything, if you don't know squat about the mass of a particle, right. you have no idea what kind of particle accelerator you would need to even create the particle right. and detect it, right? Right. There's a real important relationship between the, um, the energy of a particle accelerator. These are the, the things that smash particles together and produce new particles. Uh, they are your microscopes. Mm -hmm. And the energy is, is proportional in some way to the size of the particles that you're able to produce and detect, right? Um, inversely. Inversely related, proportional. Right. The so higher the, the energy, the smaller distances you can probe. Maybe the simplest way to put it is the smaller the thing you want to see, the bigger the dang microscope has to be. Yeah. And the bigger the particle accelerator. Right. But you were saying that this paper said, we don't know where right. to go looking. We don't know what kind of device you would need to find it. Exactly. So what do people do at that point? Well, you build the highest energy accelerator you can afford, <laughs> and you hope that it's energetic <laughs> enough to produce the damn thing and... And see it. And at the time, what was the highest energy accelerator on the planet? I mean, there were a few good ones. Um, there was a Stanford okay. Linear Accelerator, Slack. Yeah, um, not very. I mean, compared to today, no. pro probably a factor. Um, let's see. I have to think back. About <laughs> yeah, what was worry around about it. in the 1970s? But there wasn't anything that could. I mean, if you didn't know anything about the Higgs, though, uh, you know the mass, you could start using those low-powered accelerators yeah. and just see, right? Yeah. Now, now, at that time, you know, roughly the time frame we're talking about, 1970s, was there a sense that despite the difficulties, despite the caveat that you just quoted, you know, don't go looking for this thing, it's, right. don't spend a lot of money, uh, don't overdo it because it's going to be really hard, was there a feeling that we had to do it? I mean, that the standard model of particle physics is incredibly important bedrock theory of nature at the smallest scales uh, on which so much in physics rests and which had been incredibly accurate in those areas where it had been worked out well. Mm -hmm. it, was there a feeling that it really depended on us verifying the existence of the Higgs field through the, through the, the, the Higgs yeah, boson? And, and more generally verifying all the predictions of the standard model itself. And it wasn't the Higgs field. Remember, until 1983, no one had ever seen a W and a Z boson. These are the mediators of the weak force. That's right. Not all the quarks had been found yet either. Right, exactly. Yeah. And, uh, you know, people wondered what, what happens if you build an accelerator uh, and you try to produce the W and the Z boson and you don't find it. What right. would that mean? And uh, 
Ah. There were a few people who were worried at the time. And in fact, if you would have asked certain people, they would, they would tell you, gee, I hope we don't discover them, because if we don't discover them, it will be even more profound. Right, so, right. <laughs> I mean, you really have to change the way you think about <laughs> fundamental physics. And, uh, but in 1983, uh, the W and the Z bosons were discovered because they built a, a collider that had enough energy to make the particles. And in that case, you sort of knew where the ma- what the masses had to be based on the properties of the weak force. Right, right. I get it. So am I right in thinking that, okay, so we go back to the 70s, the Higgs is starting to attract interest, but it wasn't as big a deal because so many other pieces were as yet you that, know, unconfirmed. That's correct. But over the decades, as those pieces, those other pieces, all fell into place, the W and Z bosons, these other particles you mentioned, the quarks, the, when they finally found the, the final and sixth quark in the 1990s. Right. Okay, everything's coming together beautifully, but right. there's this one missing piece of the puzzle. Exactly. Which is the Higgs. Right. So that's why we, in the last decade or more, have been hearing so much about this thing. And that's why it got its stupid nickname, which we're not even going to say in this interview. <laughs> right. But it's dog spelled backwards. <laughs> <laughs> Am I right about that, then? You are right. Um, and, in fact, I could tell you that the germ of the planning for the machines that you would need to eventually discover the Higgs boson actually stemmed from 1982. Wow. So um, 1982, we were on the verge of discovering the Ws and the Zs. And so, you know, it takes a long time to develop the next generation of these big colliders. These are projects that take 25 years just to conceive, design, and build. And then another 25 years to run the machines and understand the data that comes from them. So these are are long-term projects. So 1982, we sort of anticipated that with the W and the Z about to be found, and then eventually the last quark, the top quark, uh, we would have to go further. So in 1984... A new machine was proposed called the Superconducting Supercollider, and we know the unfortunate history of that machine uh, since it was approved and uh, was beginning to be built in Texas and then in September 1993 was turned off by Congress after spending $2 billion. Uh, The scientists in Europe were... um, ready to pounce (laughs) because they had their own machine that they envisioned could do the same sorts of physics, uh, the Large Hadron Collider. And uh, once the uh, SSC, the Superconducting Supercollider, was canceled in the U.S., the the Large Hadron Collider program went full steam ahead. Right. So the U.S. had its own candidate for the world's most powerful particle accelerator, the superconducting supercollider, which was going to be built in Texas. But as you say, it was shot down by Congress, who wondered why we were spending all this money on this dang old thing they didn't understand. Right. Uh, (laughs) But uh, so the Europeans got their LHC. But let the record note that long before a lot of people jumped on the Higgs bandwagon, you were there. Uh, going all the way back to grad school. And at some point, you co-wrote a book called The Higgs Hunter's Guide, right? Right. Um, You and several other co-authors. Right. Um, When was that? When did that come out? Um, That came out uh, 1990. It was published. 1989, we had written the the draft that we circulated around the community. And this question about mass, about... That's um, where I was going. Right. Um, In 1989 we had fairly good evidence that if the Higgs boson existed, it had to have a mass above a certain number. Um, That number is about five times the mass of the proton. Pretty heavy. Well, that's pretty heavy, except... For a fundamental particle. Except the Higgs boson that was discovered two years ago (laughs) is... Oh, don't spoil the surprise. Ah, 
Okay. We're going to save that one. Okay. But tell me this. I mean, you wrote a whole book called The Higgs Hunter's Guide. What exactly goes into a book like that? Well, we wanted to describe what experimenters had to do if they were to discover the Higgs boson. And since we didn't know its mass, we had to say, suppose the mass was in this range, what sort of experiments would be relevant, what sort of measurements needed to be done in order to either discover it or definitively state that the particle did not exist with a mass up to that point. Then you take the next range of masses. Oh. Then the next range of masses. Addressing all the possibilities. Right. And that was half the book. <laughs> so what I haven't told you about, what's in the second half of the book. Okay, what's the be- second because half? Because <laughs> you have the, the, the stand-in model, which makes use of the Higgs mechanism. And that we knew had to work. But the fact that there's a single Higgs boson to be discovered, that's a very particular realization of this Higgs mechanism. And in fact, it's one of the simplest realizations, but there were lots of other possibilities. And uh, theorists are known to be able to create all sorts of fantastical models, uh, some more bizarre than others, and um, the universe sometimes a little bit more complicated than we imagine. And so one could have envisioned other models of particle physics in which maybe there was not just one Higgs boson, maybe there were five Higgs bosons, maybe the Higgs boson wasn't an elementary particle, maybe it was a composite particle made up of fundamental constituents itself. There were lots of different possibilities. And until we discovered the Higgs boson, any one of these possibilities could have been realized in nature. And so a lot of the second half of our book was looking into the most popular variations of the simplest model and how you would go about it experimentally. How would you verify that the model needed to be more complicated? So I I imagine among the range of possibilities your Higgs Hunter's Guide addressed was one where the Higgs would only be detectable in a really big particle accelerator. Correct. Something on the order of the LHC, the Large Hadron Collider. Um, At what point did people think, oh, we've got to build this thing, and among the reasons we've got to build it is to find this Higgs boson, if it's out there? Well, in in fact, you can go back to 1982 Uh and 1984. The original design of the superconducting supercollider was precisely to address this question. Because you did not want to build spend a billion dollars and build a collider and discover that if it had only a little bit more energy, we would have discovered it. Right. So they tried to use the best theoretical understanding at the time, and they said, okay, we don't know what the Higgs mass is, but we know it can't be incredibly large. There has to be an upper limit to its mass. And um, once you accept that as a probable fact, that gives you an upper limit to the energy you would need in a machine to create it. And that's how the parameters of the superconducting superglider were designed to, in some sense, take the most pessimistic view and say it was going to be as hard to find as possible within the confines of the theoretical constraints. How did you feel then when the um, superconducting supercollider was scuttled? Oh, it was a very dark day. In in fact, (laughs) I can tell you a slightly amusing story, maybe not so amusing, but um, the physics community decided to have a last-ditch effort to save the supercollider, and they were going to do a big media show in Washington, D.C., get lots of people to come, visit Congress, Because by that time, I think the House of Representatives had voted to terminate it. The Senate had not. And there was a possibility of saving it. And uh, we got some big-name speakers to this event. And 
we were hoping to get a lot of press. And about a week before the the event, Bill Clinton announces that Yasser Arafat and Yitzhak Rabin are coming to the White House to meet on the same day. <laughs> the famous handshake. And we got no press coverage at all. <laughs> that was Camp David, I guess. Yeah. Uh, so yes, at not that a good point, day to have a press conference about a superconducting supercollider. Right. So on that day, I sort of realized that uh, the fates were out of our hands, and um, and it was um, a very dark day, I think, for for physics in in the United States, actually, because it led to a massive retrenchment in some sense. The fact that the Europeans then were ready to pounce, as you said, and that they went forward with the Large Hadron Collider at CERN, is that really uh, to the detriment of physics in the U.S., or does everybody share that that machine quite nicely? Well, uh, there's a large U.S. component to that machine. Um, we contributed a non-trivial amount of money right. to its construction. Um the U.S. members of the big collaborations, the Atlas collaboration, uh, of which Santa Cruz is a member, is, uh, I may have these figures wrong, but something like 25% of the collaboration are from U.S. institutions. Right. And, and when you say Santa Cruz, you mean the Santa Cruz Institute for Particle Physics. Particle Physics. Of which you're a part. Right. Um, so um, we are a member of the Atlas Collaboration. There's a second big collaboration called the CMS Collaboration, which in fact has a slightly larger U.S. component. So, um, so in the end, does we it play really a big matter? role. Does it really matter that, that it's well, in Europe? From the from the physicist's point of view, no. But of course, you have to convince the the politicians who fund these enterprises that these are important enterprises mm. for the United States, which right. we believe they are, right. even if they're not on U.S. soil. Um, and in fact, because the machines are so large, by necessity, particle physics has turned into an international effort. Uh, in some sense, it's it's too big just for one country. Right. Um, and by necessity, it turns into an endeavor that stretches out over decades and seemingly longer and longer intervals between major discoveries uh, because as you work out the details at one level of scale and you then want to descend into an even smaller domain, mm -hmm. you need a bigger and more expensive machine that takes longer to raise money for and build. Right. Did you know that that's what you were getting into when you started out in your career, that you, you might have to sort of wait for years to get experimental confirmation of, of theories? Uh, probably I mean, wait for decades. not to the extent that it turned out. Yeah. But I should say I wouldn't give up hope on the Large Hadron Collider yet. We've discovered the Higgs boson. Uh, oh, I haven't given up hope on it. But, but it is still possible that there can be a significant number of new unexpected discoveries at the Large Hadron Collider within this decade. Oh, I hope so. And Yeah, we hope so too. And there have been lots of theoretical work trying to make the case that there should be this phenomenon that should be uh, detectable by experiments at the Large Hadron Collider. But, of course, experiment rules the day, and they determine uh, which theories are correct and which ones are not. Uh, your uh, institute, the Santa Cruz Institute for Particle Physics, is um, sponsoring a screening of a new documentary film that's going to take place at the Nickelodeon Theater in Santa Cruz. And the documentary is about the hunt for the Higgs boson at the Large Hadron Collider. It's called Particle Fever, and it was directed by a uh, a guy who's a filmmaker now but was a physicist. So, you know, it's very attentive to the details of the physics. Mm-hmm. Um, I've seen it. It follows a group of physicists at the Large Hadron Collider, this massive particle accelerator, in the years leading up to and then uh, culminating in the, the actual discovery of the Higgs that happened in 2012. Um, there's a feeling in the film among the physicists that, well, everybody's on the edge of their seat. You know, no one knows for sure whether the Large Hadron Collider has the correct energy to actually produce and detect the Higgs, right? All those billions of dollars, nine billion, some people say, might have been spent on this accelerator, and maybe the Higgs is just out of reach. 
you know? Because as you said earlier in our interview, no one knew what the mass was going to be, so no one knew exactly what kind of accelerator it would take to detect it. How were you feeling? How were you and your colleagues feeling? Like, did it feel like make or break when the uh, LHC started running? Well, I, I would say that um, we thought that the energy of the machine was correctly chosen. The issue really was the theoretical implementation of the Higgs mechanism in its simplest form predicted the single Higgs boson. But theoretical minds can be very creative, and one was able, and many theorists did this, devise more complicated, more arcane versions of the model that used the same Higgs mechanism to explain the same fundamental problems about how uh, the particles get their mass. That's the second half of your book. Um, right. <laughs> um, but the experimental consequences might look quite different from a simple Higgs boson. And in fact, one possibility, there's more than one. Uh, maybe they are not elementary particles, but uh, they are composite particles with their own constituents. Um, and... If these variations had been realized in nature, the experimental results would have looked quite different. Ah. And in fact, I, some colleagues of mine um, uh, over in Davis, for instance, had a theory which they called the Higgsless model. So there was no particle in their theory that l looked anything like a Higgs boson, but there would be other consequences of it of the Higgs mechanism. And in those theories, um, you would have to look for a different set of experimental consequences, oh some of which might have been very hard to discover at the Large Hadron Collider. So I, I think when you say it was make or break, in some sense, we all had this question, was it going to be the simplest model or something that looked like the simplest model or was it going to be some very obscure variation that would be very hard to detect? That's right, what we right. were worried about. I got it. So there was the possibility that the Higgs would be completely out of range of the Large Hadron Collider, and nothing you could do with that machine could ever produce a Higgs. But you had faith that, you know, or at least you had a strong hunch that that wasn't the case. But right. even so... You have to set up these experiments. You have to smash the particles together in a certain way. You have to have the detectors to detect the results in a certain way. And even in the case where the Higgs or some Higgsy thing was produced, you might not have the right experiment. Uh, you know, so you might have to go back to the drawing board on that level right. again well, that's, and again. That's one of the reasons we wrote the Higgs Hunter's Guide. We were trying to anticipate a lot of the variations so that they wouldn't completely miss out. But, of course, you know, since 1990, uh, theorists have been hard at work. <laughs> right. They've they found even new, stranger implementations of the Higgs mechanism, which led to different types of phenomenon. And then they had to tell the experimentalists, well, don't forget that uh, you better start thinking about this class of phenomenon, which is not on your radar screen at the moment. But if you don't find the Higgs boson, you may have to start... <laughs> You know, orienting yourself in this direction. So tell me about the um, the cultural relationship between you theorists and those experimentalists, the people who have to run the machine, set up the um, equipment, and uh, create the detectors, and so on and so forth, in order to confirm what you guys speculate about. All right. Do they find you guys bothersome? <laughs> Only occasionally. With all of your possibilities but, and but then they get the, ends or buts. They get... <laughs> They get thrills by proving us wrong, so. <laughs> well, in the end, as we all know, since this is sort of, uh, we're backward looking in this, uh, in this interview so far, we know that the Higgs was found, and in fact, it was announced on July 4th, 2012, at 0700 Greenwich Mean Time, uh, that after a certain amount of number crunching and studying of results, they were pretty sure, or they were sure, they had the Higgs in their hands, or I should say you guys were sure. Right. Where were you at that moment when the announcement was made? So I was in Melbourne, Australia, because 
every uh, year there's a big international meeting in particle physics um, summarizing the state of the field. And usually for these big summer meetings, the big experiments work very hard to get their results ready to present at the meetings. And those meetings are are often used for announcements for the big results. But uh, once they decided they had the Higgs boson, they thought, well, we should really announce it at CERN. And so uh, they set up a simulcast with the CERN site, and we basically watched the presentations from the, the big lecture hall at the convention center in Melbourne. And it was one of the most exciting uh, events uh, in my scientific career. These meetings typically have a thousand people or so, and uh, most of them had arrived already, and we were all in there. And uh, the, the cheers that erupted when the experimental presentations produced a slide that said, and we have this signal, and it has this significance, and we saw that it had crossed the threshold from, in some sense, hints to actual discovery. It was, it was really thrilling. It was almost 50 years after the you know, very first uh, theoretical work that discussed the possibility of a Higgs mechanism and so on. Right. It was 40 years after you yourself started writing, you know, researching the Higgs uh, in the 70s. About 35. 35, okay. <laughs> a long time. It is. So how did you personally feel? It was a thrilling moment for me, mainly because I invested so much blood, sweat, and tears over the years <laughs> uh, on something. It's nice realizing that a lot of this work you've done over the years actually corresponds to something that's actually there. <laughs> you know, I think I'll play a uh, clip from the film we just talked about, the new documentary, Particle Fever, about the, the successful hunt for the Higgs boson. This is from a, a physicist... Um, Nima Arkani Hamed, uh, who's at the Institute for Advanced Study at Princeton. This is something he says in the film before they've announced the discovery, before they've made the discovery. Thinking about the LHC has been the center of my intellectual life for about 15, 16 years now. Depending on what happens uh, with the LHC, you know, these, these are 15 years I could come to see is the best possible thing I could have been doing with this time. Or it could just be that entire 15 years might as well have not happened, had no impact, and then that's just 15 years that are gone. It's not the sort of thing where, where there's uh, consolation prizes. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a fairly binary situation. I, I definitely won't feel, oh, well, I gave it a good old college try. It's all fine anyway. It's just trying that counts. I don't believe that. I don't believe it's just trying that counts. I believe getting it right is what counts. Would you have felt that way yourself if if things hadn't worked out? Um, oh, golly, you know, the 35 years weren't worth anything? Well, I, I must say, um, to some extent, not quite, because if the Higgs boson had not been discovered, um, there would have been something else, some other realization of the Higgs mechanism um, maybe it wouldn't have been the realization that I personally worked on, but a lot of the effort that I put in over the years was understanding how this all comes together. And uh, I think all of that was an important part of the process. And uh, I, I had enough confidence that we understood nature well enough, at least at that point, to know that something was going to be revealed of profound significance at the LHC. Um, so um, I, I guess I'm a little bit more optimistic than Nima <laughs> uh, in this regard. Um, we talked about all the possibilities you covered in the book you co-wrote, The Higgs Hunter's Guide, all of the variations <laughs> that might be possible with this Higgs mechanism and the particles or no particles that it produced, right? Right. But at least as of 1990. At, at least as of that date. There were even right. more theories that came afterwards. Exactly. But among all those possibilities, did it turn out to be the most basic, the simplest one? Yes. It did. That's, uh, now, uh, one should say that 
it's still not a, a, an open and shut case um, that it's just the simplest one because, of course, we have a limited data set at this point, and we can say that it looks like the simplest model uh, to the precision that we can make the measurements as of today. But that precision has errors in it because um, this is a statistical game you play eventually of making measurements and trying to match them up with theoretical prediction. Mm -hmm. And the precision becomes better the more data you accumulate. So there's certainly room still for deviations from the predictions of the simplest standard model. And in fact, that's a lot of the effort that's going on at the moment, both in the theory community and in the experimental community, is to go after that and to see, is it really the Higgs boson exactly as predicted by the standard model? Or will there be some small discrepancies that will begin to appear over the next 5 to 10 to 15 years uh, that might suggest that there's other phenomena lurking Let's, let's, for the sake of argument, assume that it is that exact Higgs that the standard model predicted. Mm -hmm. So we said earlier that the standard model is this very detailed description of physics at a, a certain scale, you know, tiny particles, uh, the ones we know about, and how they interact, and it's proven very, very accurate. So now that the Higgs has been found, and let's again assume that it's the Higgs that the standard model predicted— is the standard model then pretty much uh, a closed book? Is it done? Well, I, I would say that the answer really is no to that question because we know of certain phenomena that cannot be explained strictly within the standard model. Probably the simplest example would be neutrino masses. Um, so here I've been telling you that... Uh, the Higgs boson is responsible, or the Higgs mechanism is responsible for masses, but neutrino masses actually have a complicated origin. <laughs> um, and in the standard model, in the, viewed in a very strictly defined sense, the neutrinos would be exactly massless, uh, interestingly uh, enough. And it, so, the Higgs field does not solve that problem. Not within the standard model itself. You have to add a little bit to the standard model. Now, I give you that example, but there are ways to make very simple extensions of the standard model to include the neutrinos. Okay, so let's put that aside. I, some of my neutrino friends like to boast that they've already proven that the standard model is not the correct theory because of their neutrino data. But Okay, we can tweak the standard model a bit. But something, as an example, much more um, troublesome for the standard model is dark matter. Uh, we have a lot of astrophysical evidence for the existence of dark matter, which behaves gravitationally like other matter, but cannot be any one of the standard model particles. How does that fit in? We don't know. Um, now, one of the there are class of theories that attempt to extend the standard model to allow for dark matter, and a lot of those theories predict that the dark matter should be accompanied with a lot of other new physics phenomenon that's discoverable at the Large Hadron Collider, say in the next five years. Uh, whether that class of theories is uh, correct or not, or has a chance of being correct, we don't know today. Are we talking about supersymmetry? That would be an example. Okay. Um, and this is an extension of the standard model. This would be an extension of the standard model. So it doesn't undo the standard model, but it adds another sort of layer to the standard model. Right. And it, it posits a whole bunch of other particles that are counterparts of the standard model, model right. particles, supersymmetric partners. Right. And you're saying that the Large Hadron Collider could discover these things. If... Again, we don't know the masses. Right, right, right. right. Um, so if they happen to be too heavy, then we're out of luck. Now, this brings the discussion to a completely different area because when asking the question, is 
the standard model the end or not. You take the standard model as it exists today, and, and a theorist looking at this and understanding its mathematical description leaves a very sour taste in your mouth because the Higgs particle has mass itself. So where does its mass I come was going to ask you that. So, so let's backtrack and just remind people that one reason why the Higgs boson is so important, this subatomic particle that was recently discovered, is that it in turn indicates the existence and verifies the existence of what's called the Higgs field, which in turn is used to explain how certain particles get their mass, which is a really important problem. But the Higgs particle itself has mass. Right. And it doesn't get it from itself or from the Higgs field. Well, part of it it gets from the Higgs field, okay. but the problem is is that, again, when you write out the mathematical description of this theory, you discover, much to your chagrin, is that it could get mass from all sorts of places, not only its interactions with itself, with its Higgs field. And for some reason, when you add all these contributions to its mass you get the mass we see in the experiment. Um, so you might say, okay, so fine, it, it has some other contributions. Um, but the other contributions can be incredibly large. So I told you uh, at some point in this discussion that even though we didn't know the mass of the Higgs boson, just from theoretical properties of how this all has to work, it shouldn't have a mass that's too heavy. On the other hand, when you start to look into the details of the theory and see where its mass could come from, it can have incredibly large mass. Don't we know as a result of the discovery what its mass actually is? We do. And but, but what that means is that somehow you have to tune the contributions from all the other sources of the mass that c contribute to the Higgs boson uh -huh. in such a way that it ends up where <laughs> it is. And this fine-tuning of all these sources seems incredibly strange. Uh, we have no example of such a mechanism in any of our theories. And so theorists have regarded the Higgs boson in its present formulation as very problematical, and they look for ways to get rid of this problem. And one of the ways of getting rid of it is inventing new layers. For instance, supersymmetry was one of the theoretical ideas applied to solving this problem. So it happened to have a nice candidate for the dark matter. That was one of the bonuses of supersymmetry. But in some sense, it's, it was really brought into the game to try to understand how the Higgs boson mass could end up being where it ended up being. Well, from what I know of you theoretical physicists, at least a lot of you guys, you are almost OCD about simplifying, cleaning things up, right? Making right. things neater, you know? Does it drive you crazy that every time you get to one, you know, you get one thing in its place, a whole new complication pops up? Or do you love that? <laughs> well, it's, we love it in the sense that it means that we're missing something really fundamental from our description of nature, and that makes life exciting. It's, I, one of the reasons the Large Hadron Collider is built was not only to discover the Higgs boson, but understand how it can live in its theoretical context. And that suggested that new phenomenon must be lying out there somewhere. We are at a point of we have some really deep and profound uh, mysteries about this theory that includes the Higgs boson. And one of the ways of solving this is to say there's a new layer, if you want, uh, new, sometimes we call it physics beyond the standard model, right. that um, has not been discovered yet, but is about to be discovered because this is the right energy scale that you need to study in order to discover the phenomenon that's going to answer this particular question. Particle physics, the next generation. Yeah, but it's actually our generation. <laughs> it's really our generation. So are you working on this now? 
this is certainly part of what I've been working on, I'd say, also, along with the Higgs over the last 10 to 20 years. Mm. These issues, what, what we call the nature of the physics beyond the standard model. But if you run the LHC for 25 years and discover nothing else, and it's just that Higgs boson, then we are left wondering, do our ideas that try to understand how this Higgs boson mass came to be, do they make sense? Are they consistent with the way we think we understand these theories? Or is someone out there fine-tuning <laughs> parameters to an incredible accuracy that just makes things right to get the world to look like it looks like? But then there's a, um, there are a class of theorists who have gone in a completely different direction, and they say they have some very highfalutin fundamental theory of everything, string theory, whatever, that predicts that we live, well, we live in a universe, but it's not the only universe. Oh, it predicts the multiverse. the existence of many, many universes, and um, therefore, um, yes, it looks like a fine-tuning, it looks like a one in a zillion possibilities, but there are a zillion universes out there, and only one of them is the one that's going to create us, the observers, to start to contemplate nature. You know, you've just um, explained a part of the film, Particle Fever, that I was going to ask you about. I think I'll just play this clip right now okay. that relates directly to what you're saying. This is another physicist in the film who you know well, I guess, David Kaplan of mm -hmm. Johns Hopkins University. The mass of the Higgs, namely the weight of the Higgs, can actually tell us or give us a hint about what comes next. If the mass uh, is on the lighter side, then that's consistent with some of the standard things we've been looking for. Supersymmetry generally favors that the Higgs is as light as possible. About 115 times the mass of the proton. It's 115 GeV, giga electron volts. If, on the other hand, the Higgs is 140 GeV, 140 times the mass of the proton, it's a terrible mass because 140 GeV is associated with theories that rely on the multiverse. So that was David Kaplan, uh, one of the physicists uh, portrayed in the film Particle Fever, a documentary about the uh, successful search for the Higgs boson uh, at the Large Hadron Collider. Um, and how you were just describing exactly that, that problem that he was talking about, right. that if the mass of the Higgs turned out, and he was saying this before the discovery was made, if it turned out to be very heavy, and seemed like kind of a kludge, I guess, in a way that seemed like a lot of parameters had to be tweaked a certain way to result in the mass being this, that it might support this multiverse idea. Right. That there are multiple universes out there, and there's a, a theory behind how there could be multiple universes, of which ours was just but one. Um, then they could each have different sets of basic parameters, they could have different combinations of what are called constants and produce very different kinds of physical uh, environments and physical laws. And that ours just might be one of many, you know, a random you know, card pulled from the deck, right. right? And that would be kind of dissatisfying because then you'd have no way of explaining these things other than to say, well, you know, we're just, we're just one of many random combinations. Right. And the others out there could be very different. Indeed, this is what uh, some of my colleagues believe, and uh, I, I'm hoping that that's not the case. Well, well the question <laughs> that, that is raised there, he's saying this before they, they found the mass of the Higgs. Right. He was saying if it's really heavy, it could, be, it could support this multiverse thing, which would be very unsatisfying in some ways because it means the answer's out there, but in another universe right. <laughs> or in the collection of universes. And if it's really light, it could support supersymmetry, which is a a well-worked-out theory that a lot of people um, are hoping turns out to be true. But where was the mass in that range of possibilities, and what are we left with at this point? Yeah, so the, the mass that we found for the Higgs boson is still consistent with some of the sim 
Nicholas supersymmetry models, but it's but there's tension. It's on the high side. What that seems to suggest is the supersymmetric particle masses themselves are rather heavy and may be out of the range of the Large Hadron Collider. Oh, they require even more energy to find them? Yeah, but um, actually, I mean, already uh, there is a groundswell of activity discussing the next collider, which would be six times more powerful in energy than the LHC. Now, this would be something that you couldn't conceive of even starting for another 20 years. But, of course, since it takes so long to plan, develop, do the R&D necessary uh, to even know how to build such things and also hopefully build it in an affordable way, um, you have to start talking about that today to have any hope of doing it in the future. So people do talk about maybe there's one more step in energy we can take. But meanwhile, the LHC itself, hasn't it been turned up a notch uh, in energy level since the, the discovery of the Higgs? Wasn't that the plan? Yes. Um, when the LHC started operations, there was uh, an explosion which knocked it out for a year. That's depicted in the film, too, yeah. And um, as a result, when it finally turned on, it turned on at about half the energy because they didn't want to take any chances. We're in the middle of a two-year shutdown period at the moment where they're doing the final permanent repairs, and they will then restart it at its original design energy, which will be almost a factor of two larger. Great. So so the old, uh, I'm calling it old, it's actually a relatively new thing, but it, it ain't done yet. Uh, there's whole new energy domains to explore. There's all kinds of new experiments to be done that haven't been done yet. Absolutely. Don't, count the, don't count the LHC right. out yet. Also, keep in <laughs> mind is that uh, as important energy is, there's another key attribute, which is what we call luminosity, which is another way of saying how much data you, you take. And... Uh, the amount of data we've taken in the first phase of operations is a factor of 10 below the design luminosity of the machine. So not only are we going to double the energy, we're going to multiply the luminosity by a factor of 10, and there's serious discussion of multiplying it by another factor of 10 in the 2020s. So by multiplying the data sets by factors of 10 and 100, you increase the statistical significance of the signals you see, and you are also sensitive to much smaller signals whose statistical significance uh, only become relevant once you have these extremely large data sets. Great. All so, the more reason to look forward to great new things from the LHC. Absolutely. So we're just getting started. Yes, we are. <laughs> But this interview is just ending, and I just want to thank you. It has been fantastic talking to you. Oh, my pleasure. Howard Haber is a professor of physics at UC Santa Cruz and part of the Santa Cruz Institute for Particle Physics. This has been the 7th Avenue Project, online at 7thAvenueProject.com. I'm Robert Polly. And uh, before I say goodbye, I'd just like to uh, clarify a couple of points that came up in the interview. One was uh, back toward the beginning when I said that bosons are a type of fundamental particle that transmits forces. So you might well have wondered, what about the Higgs boson? Does it transmit a force? Well, I talked to Howie Haber, and he says, yeah, you could think of it that way. With the discovery of the Higgs boson and the Higgs field, we have a fifth force to reckon with. On top of the four incumbent fundamental forces, gravity, electromagnetism, the strong nuclear force, and the weak nuclear force, there is a new kid on the block, and you might as well call it the Higgs force. Also, uh, earlier in the interview, we talked about the inverse relationship between the size of a particle accelerator and the distances that it can probe. The smaller the stuff you want to see, the bigger and more powerful the machine you're going to need to do it. That's because you've got to produce beams with very short wavelengths, the proverbial fine-tooth comb. Shorter wavelengths, in turn, mean higher frequencies, which require more energy and thus more powerful accelerators. But what we didn't uh, really make clear 
is that you also need a bigger particle accelerator to produce more massive particles, which is because of E equals mc squared, Einstein's equation, that says, in essence, you need a lot of energy to produce even a small amount of mass. And that is why it took the LHC to generate the Higgs boson, which, though very tiny, is also very massive, more than 100 times heavier than a proton. And uh, one final point, you probably noticed that though we did talk a lot about the all-important Higgs mechanism, the process that confers mass on certain particles when they interact with the Higgs field, we made no effort to explain it. And that is because Howie says he hasn't figured out a way to do so uh, that doesn't involve a lot of math and high-level theory. So there just wasn't uh, time to tackle that in this interview. But Howie did make it clear to me that the uh, usual layperson's explanation of the Higgs mechanism, the one that you might have heard about in the popular press, is not correct. It is not that the Higgs field puts a drag on particles, bogging them down like fish trying to swim through molasses and converting some of their kinetic energy, that is their motion, into mass. Nope, that ain't it, he says. Though what it is, I'm afraid I can't tell you at this point perhaps on some future show. Anyway, I hope you keep listening, and so long until next week.